morning. Curious, if you want to do the calculations, how many sermons have you heard in your life? There's 52 weeks in a year, so we, we can assume 52 Sundays. In addition to that, how many lectures, Sunday school classes, YouTube opportunities? How, how many lessons from God's Word have you heard? Follow-up question, how many do you remember? How many of those made a very particular uh, had a particular uh, effect. Now, I, I ask that because I want to be clear. Our, our philosophy of preaching here at Jefferson Park, it's, it's meant to be a slow, dripping IV. It, it, it's meant to be a, a regular, steady cure for, for the, the, the sin that's invasive in the way we think and desire and, 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 and live. See, the Word of God, it, it transforms us over time. We don't believe there's this one magic pill. If you're new with us, if you're here and you're hoping just to get one thing, we do hope you'll hear the one thing you need to know and that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us as sinners. But believers, we, we need to regularly have the Word of God washing over us. We, we need to regularly have that steady cure of God's Word as we come together to hear it read, as we come together to sing to one another those words to remind each other, to hear that Word. We pray that there's a way in which just the way we handle it is transforming so that we are learning reverence. It's necessary for us to regularly hear God's word that transforms us. Important also, it's necessary we hear it so that we believe it and obey it. We must hear it so that we might believe it and obey it. So this morning, have we come eager to hear, believe, and obey? And as we hear God's word, to to look into his perfect word, to, to see our sin, to confess it, to repent of it, to be transformed. This is what God intends to do with his word. It helps us. I mentioned this because as we look at our text, I want us to understand this morning, I'm preaching, as they say, to the choir. <laughs> the choir being a way, folks, reference, you know, the, the people who are here to listen and, and, and already agree. It's important as we look, Jesus has gone into the temple where the people have come to hear and expect God's word. And even the chief priests are supposed to be leading God's people in God's word. It's important we don't take for granted God's word. It's important we, we do not lose a, a respect and a reverence and an expectation of what God desires to do with his word. As we come to this text, it's It's frightening to see how someone can be so accustomed, so familiar, even the experts, those who are supposed to be teaching God's word, and yet not have the respect for it, or reverence for even he who gave it to us. This morning we're going to see three things about Jesus. His authority, his sonship, 
and that he is the cornerstone. Jesus' authority, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is cornerstone. As Cecilia read the, the two parts above, uh, right before and right after our text, because I want us to see there's, there's an interesting dynamic that, 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 that's leading up to and, and that flows from this, and that the chief priests, they, they're supposed to have a fear of God that uh, charges them, that, that, that leads them. But you see here, it's the people. They're, they have a fear of the people who are hanging on the words of God, and so they are caught in this dilemma. And we really understand and appreciate that dilemma that Jesus is stepping into here in Luke chapter 20. Jesus has come upon the holy city. If you've been with us, we've been walking through the gospel of Luke. Jesus has turned his face to Jerusalem in 951. He continues to look to Jerusalem. Now he has finally entered into the capital city. The, the, the center of worship. And he's gone into the center of the city even, and the temple, and he's found that it's rotten to its core. This is what's wrong with the city. He first looked at the city and wept as a king who loves his city. Then he goes into the temple and he has to cleanse it. The, 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 the worship of the, the whole city is supposed to flow out of the temple, but instead we see that it's corruption. The leaders who should be recognizing Jesus as the Messiah are telling him to rebuke the disciples for praising him. They are despising him, seeking to destroy him. This is the backdrop of Jesus the Good Shepherd going into his city to care for his people. Now, notice he's teaching daily, according to chapter 19, verse 47. We're focused in on that one day. This is Monday, we assume. And he's teaching in the temple, and he's preaching the gospel. Jesus' ministry is very much focused in on him declaring God's word to God's people as the word of God. And we're going to see a series of different leaders taking shots at him. This morning, it's the chief priests the scribes, and the elders. That's, that's from verse 1. They're, they're, they're going to fail, and then another group's going to take another angle. Another group's going to take another angle. Those who are supposed to be leading God's people to recognize who Jesus is, is trying to challenge Jesus. So first up, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Notice how they approach him. Jesus teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, chief priests, scribes, and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. This is an important question. By whose authority? Anytime somebody is making a demand, you should be asking by, by whose authority? If we go back, we can even see how the religious leaders have already accused him of doing miracles by the authority of Satan. There's a great corruption we've already seen happen in asking the question, by whose authority? Jesus has clearly a unique authority. He teaches, as we've heard, greater than the, the scribes and the Pharisees. He's done miracles no one else could possibly have done. And here, the religious leaders are asking where did you get this authority? Now, we want to be very clear. This isn't an honest question. It's a catch question. Do we, do we know the difference? 
I don't know if you're in a position where you get these kinds of questions, but, but there's folks who like to give, you know, sometimes catch them questions. It, it, they they want to ask a question. They're trying to catch you and how you're answering the question so that now you're, you're somehow culpable for, for something. There's a way to ask a good question the wrong way. And they're asking a really good question, but they're asking it for the wrong purposes. Jesus here is hearing what they're asking, and he refuses to answer in a way. Now, we'll see Jesus over and over again get asked the wrong question by, by people who really want to believe. And he'll answer what they should have asked. Here, they're asking in order to catch him. Now, what do they want him to say? The assumption must be they want him to say, I am the Messiah. I, I am the chosen one of the Lord. I, I, I am uh, the, the word incarnate. They, they want him to make the claim he's made numerous times before that he is Yahweh. He is the Lord. There's two ways in which that would be difficult for the people to hear. The, the chief priests want the people to hear him say something so that they can now turn and destroy him. One way this works is those who are very zealous for the Lord would have a hard time understanding. The Lord is with us in the flesh. The creator is here among us as, as part of the creation. That would be a difficult thing to comprehend, to understand. It would be blasphemy if it weren't true. The other might be something a little different. The crowds can be fickle. There are many there who might just want to hear what he has to say as much as they like it, but don't want to hear he has the kind of authority that, yes, whatever he says is thus says the Lord because he is the Lord. There's two possible ways in which this could work against Jesus if he were to make it clear with even the people that he is the Lord. Some would be too zealous to hear that a man is their creator. Jesus, the word of God taken on flesh, or too idolatrous to submit to God. Both would work in the priest's favor. These guys are wanting Jesus to say something that would help them condemn him. Well, there's an old saying, though, whoever defines the terms wins the debate. Jesus wants to turn this on them and make it clear, are you going to answer my question? Look at verse 3. His answer, I will ask you a question. You tell me. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? This is important as we look back to what's happened and, and and what's he going to what's he going to say here in a moment was john the baptist what was his ministry marked here by the baptism was was john the baptist and what he was proclaiming is it from heaven that is from the lord or was it just from earth did, did it come down with heavenly authority was he a prophet of god if we go back to john the baptist he is the prophet who said of jesus Jesus is coming, and then when he saw him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. He identified Jesus very uniquely. The Spirit anointed him with this very unique mission to be the last prophet who was going to say he's coming and to be the first prophet who says he has come. He prepared the way. He baptized Jesus, not because Jesus repented of sin, but to make sure he is ready and anointed, identifying with us as part of his mission. So, if John is from earth, 
He doesn't have heavenly authority. He's not a prophet of God. He's not uniquely called to prepare the way. John is important because of the ways in which he is specifically preparing the way for Jesus. He's Jesus' cousin. He preached outside of the norms. He did not preach in the synagogues. He preached out in the wilderness. He preached repentance, turn away from your sins. He confronted the people, these religious leaders, even political powers. He was eventually beheaded by Herod. Jesus' question is pressing for them, as we see in Luke's narration. Look at verses 5 and 7. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. They get the trick. They're filling the catch-22. They are admitting they did not believe John the Baptist, the prophet of God. Notice there. There's actually no deliberation on how they treated John or how they responded to John, how they received him. If we say he's from heaven, he's going to ask, and we don't have an answer for this, why don't you believe him? If we say he's from man, again, that that fear of the the people hanging on the very words of Jesus, that's what's controlling them. If we say he wasn't from God, then we're in danger from the people. What we see among these Religious leaders who are supposed to be leading God's people to have a right reverence for God is they don't have a fear of God. And God is right there in their midst in the temple. They do not lead with conviction. They are more worried about the people. And so they say, we will not answer you. And Jesus says, therefore, I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. Leaders of Jefferson Park Baptist Church, may we never get caught in this dilemma. To be clear, it is an absolute honor to preach to you, church, choir. It's an absolute honor to preach to you because when I come across a difficult, demanding passage, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get in more trouble if I don't present it as clearly and fully as it is. I praise God for that. I have friends who pastor churches and they have to wrestle with what they can say and, and, and not be accused of something afterwards And when it comes straightly from the word. There's many Sundays I have to look at my notes. Am I going to say this? Well, the text demands it. Church, I want you to see how important it is for the healthy, regular preaching of the word for, for you to be eager and ready to hear it. It's a blessing. It isn't just, is is someone willing to to preach boldly? Is there a church that's willing to hear it and respond to it and and want to promote it? You have a significant role in the regular preaching of God's word. This past Wednesday, Matt taught from 1 Thessalonians 5, 20, 21. Do not despise prophecy. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. We as a church are responsible for how the word of God is being taught. If you want to see an example of how this plays out, look at Galatians. Paul holds the whole church responsible for what is being proclaimed. I want to thank you for for, for being a blessing to to making it an honor to to proclaim God's word to you because you are eager to hear it. I also want to make sure we hear a warning 
we need to be regularly wanting to hear God's word. The, the way we've designed our worship is that we're trying to protect as much as possible from someone's opinion or, or, or some ideal philosophy uh, intruding in what we're doing because we're going to walk through the books of the Bible. The topics are already t- designed and planned out for us. This is our commitment to you, church. Don't want to continue to desire your love for the word, to, to help promote our love for the word. Another thing we've got to wrestle with from the text, a real important question. Where does Jesus get his authority? We would ask, what kind of authority does Jesus have? Do we look to Jesus as the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth? Do we see him? He's going to answer where he gets his authority from eventually in the text. His authority is that he's the son of God, our creator. His authority comes in that he's the savior the one who died on the cross to purchase us with his precious blood. He has all authority. And we have to do a little bit of work here. I just want to recognize we live in a sinful world. We see authority abused over and over again. We, we need to do a little bit of work and just make a statement that, that might not always seem obvious to us. There is such thing as good authority. There is such thing as good authority. Okay, we all have been treated by someone authority, poorly. He who has all authority is God, and he is good. That's worth just meditating upon the whole week. Go to James. He gives every good and perfect gift. He who has all authority. He holds the, the nations in his hands. He who rises up the kings in authority and will crush them at his will. He's good. He's good. So so we need to wrestle with Jesus' authority. One, it's it's the most powerful authority. It 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 is perfect, complete authority. And he is perfectly and completely good. This is so important for us to recognize. It's It's good authority. He who reigns over us. He who has come to be our king. He who has come to teach us. He's good. When he exercises his right arm, it's good. As we continue in our text, we now see he is the son. He's been teaching the people. The chief priests interrupted to try to catch him. He turns that back on them. They refuse to say anything. Now notice Jesus is going to speak to the people. People, and he's going to give a parable. The parable would reference something that's pretty common for them to understand. At one level, this would be pretty common in just practice. Someone would buy land, they would live in another place, they would hire tenants out to work it and keep it. Another level, this is actually a text that I believe should bring us back to Isaiah 5, where God builds a vineyard. Puts tenants, the prophets, in charge of it. And, and the people revolt, or the people are, are, are unfaithful in their work. Here we, we, we see there's, a, there's a, a number of ways this, this parable is going to be playing out for us. 
So we turn to the parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Again, everything should be pretty normal up till now. Story goes a little sideways with but. But the tenants, those he left in charge of his land, beat him, the servant, and sent him away empty-handed. The, the landowner, the, the man who created the vineyard, moved away. He has every right to the fruit. He's sending the servant as an ambassador into his vineyard to do what he has every right to do, and that is to receive some fruit. The tenants, we don't have any motivation yet, but they, they treat the servant who's representing the, the landowner so poorly. They, they beat him, and they send him away empty-handed. Well, what does the landowner do next? Verse 11, he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully. And they sent him away empty-handed. Okay, verse 12, what happens next? And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. There's a pattern here. It's a wicked, destructive pattern. We could actually look and say, why does the landowner keep sending servants? We see here, they, they, they're very consistent, the tenants. Every time he sends someone, they, they mistreat them and, and they don't give the, the, the landowner what he, what he wants. Curious, what would you do at this point if you're the landowner? Would you send another servant? Which is in the police? Well, verse 13 is significant. This landowner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Thank you for the people. You, you have a bit of a gasp here. But what will they do to the son? The, the, the pattern's set. They, they, these guys seem pretty bad. Are you sure, landowner? The, the tension should be felt fully. Perhaps they will respect him. They, they haven't respected servant after servant after servant, but I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they shall respect him. Notice how the tenants respond. When the tenants saw the beloved son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. The owner assumes I'm going to send someone more important, more powerful, They'll have more respect. Notice the wickedness of the tenants. The, the more important, the more powerful, the more wicked they become. They go from beating and treating shameful to, to killing them. And the whole thing's backwards. 
how are they going to inherit because they killed the son? Here we see the landowner sending the servants, finally sending the beloved son, assuming they must respect him, but the the wicked tenants, they, they never change. Verse 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Then he asked, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? There's a moment of reflecting. What, what should this owner do? He's been patient. He's been generous. He's been assuming there will be some kind of respect. Well, Jesus answers this question. He will come and he will destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And I believe when the, Luke tells us they heard this, the crowds, I, I don't believe they're saying, surely not he wouldn't judge them. I believe the, the, right, the right response is, surely not, this, this couldn't happen. Surely not, such an owner would not keep sending servants. Surely not, the owner wouldn't send his own son. Surely not, may this kind of story never be. Well, now we have to come and ask, what does this parable mean? As I mentioned before, it likens back to Isaiah 5. The crowd should have already heard a a likening of God who builds a vineyard and and puts his tenants in charge of it who are rebellious. We could go back to even Luke 13, 34, where Jesus already grieved over Jerusalem because over and over again, Jerusalem has killed the prophets of God. We go back to even our passage last week, Luke 19, where Jesus weeps over Israel and the way they refuse to hear and believe the day of visitation is upon them. Now, if we're to interpret this passage rightly, the tenants will be the chief priests in this story. The servants who, who were sent to, to, to go and receive something would be the prophets over and over again. They were mistreated, they were rejected, they were refused. And Jesus is the beloved son. Just as the chief priest just admitted they've rejected John the Baptist, the prophet. They, 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 they're the tenants who have rejected the servants who, who have come to prepare the way, to, who have come before the son. And they will soon kill the son, taking him out of the vineyard. It's an incredible story in the way it shows us two things. The incredible kindness of God. The incredible steadfast love that we all repeated earlier in the call to worship. The the way it reveals the steadfast love of the Lord. And the way it shows how wicked our sin is. The sin is evidenced by their disrespect. If we were to look at just one word to, to hone in on that would help us to, to think about what sin is in this passage, it's the fact that there was such disrespect for the landowner that they killed his son. The parable highlights our wickedness in God's steadfast love. Notice there, there is a key difference. In, in what the parable's doing to tell a story and, and, and what God's story actually reveals in Scripture. The parable, the landowner, assumes they won't mistreat the son. 
in the parable, the son is, is unknowingly going to get killed in God's truth. God knows what they're going to do to his son. God ordains even that this is what would happen to his son for their own salvation. Why does God commit to do this? It really is. We can look and say, well, why, why, would, why would God send these servants to, to be mistreated? Why would God allow such evil to be done? One simple answer is because God promised to save a people. Even a people who would over and over and over and over again reject him. God is being steadfast in his love in that he's, he's promised to save a people from their sin. And therefore God is going to continue to send his word to his people. And his, his word being rejected leads to the prophets being mistreated. It's incredible to see how his love is so committed to a people who do not deserve it. That's a significant takeaway. We're going to step back also. We've got to ask, how are we like these tenants? It's not if. I also don't assume it's how are we just like them, but, but how? Again, uh, preaching to the choir, do, do we regularly just receive his authoritative word in rejoicing, or do we... Do we reject him? Do, 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 we, do we figure out little tricks to play so we know how to dismiss his word? Do we, do we figure out how to regularly hear some word but, but refuse to be truly conformed the way he's prescribed? Do we do, as I assume many of you heard in the Sunday school class, do we, do we suppress what's so clear from God? Maybe his promise and wanting to trust him. Maybe his commandment and wanting to obey him. This passage is terrifying. And that we can become so accustomed to God's word and yet still grow comfortable with disobedience. We need to let that awkwardness linger for a moment. Can we become so accustomed with God's word, and yet find disobedience comfortable? Do, do we dare pray, Lord, how can I be more conformed to Christ? Lord, how can I be more conformed to Christ? One of the clear problems that the tenants reveal is that they assume they should be owners when the Lord has given them the privileged position of ambassadors. That, that's a confusion that we, we see in sin. You can see in the garden. Oh, God, God, God breathed into Adam life. Prepared a garden. Placed Adam in the garden. Gave him everything he ever wanted in the garden. And then when Satan came, well, shouldn't you be an owner of this place? I mean, you can't have that one tree. Adam should have seen, oh, I have everything I want. Especially God. 
but, but the desire to, to be acting as if he could be an owner, which he couldn't be, led him to reject the God who had given him everything good. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has revealed the answer as to where his authority comes from. He is the son who came knowingly to die for us. We must be careful not to dismiss him and his goodness. Fred, if you're not a Christian this morning, what we see pictured here is a, a, a definitive picture of what sin is. It's, it's rejecting God. It's, it's, it's refusing him. It's, it's not respecting him. We were designed to be creatures who respect God and know him and his love. He is the great God who is worthy of all honor and respect. Our sin, we could go through the whole Ten Commandments and see how we've all broken them. But, but if we just recognize that the key sin we all have is we've, we've refused to worship God. He's worthy. And there's nothing we can do to actually fix our own problem, our sin problem. That's why Jesus comes down to intentionally come and die in our place for the sin of, not re, of, of worshiping him. So that he could restore us in worship. If you're not a believer, don't, don't leave without talking to somebody about what it means to recognize sin. To, to see the love of Jesus that he would die for us even while we're rejecting him. So that we might grow to properly respect him. If you think about the gospel, it's incredible the tenets and their, 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 the lie they created. Let's kill the son so we can get the inheritance. Believer, Jesus said, I'm going to come and die so that you can have my inheritance. Do, do, do we get how twisted this is as we think about our own way of fixing whatever problem we think it is? Let's kill the son so we can get what, what, what Jesus promises with his own death. Oh, the twistedness of of sin. Third, the third thing we see in the text, we see he is the one who has great authority. We see he is the beloved son. Finally, Jesus shows us he is the cornerstone. Verse 17, Jesus has been teaching the crowd, the chief priest engaged with him specifically. He pans back out and he talks to the people, verse 9, with a parable. I believe when he says he looked directly at them, I think we're back with the chief priest here. What then is this that is written? They would be very well acquainted with this psalm, as we would already know, because in Psalm 118, when the disciples are using Psalm 118 to recognize Jesus is he who is coming in the name of the Lord, worthy of praise of Messiah, they say, Jesus, you've got to stop letting them say that because it's inappropriate. And Jesus says, well, if they do not say it, the stones will praise. Jesus cites that psalm again. The stone the builders rejected. And if you want to think about how this works, you've got builders and tenants. Builders and tenants are parallel. The stone the builders rejected, he has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and he, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So he gives these simple 
quotation. This is what's written. He's, he's making it clear. Uh, this, this text is telling you everything I've already told you. And then he gives his own interpretation. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. We should go back to Psalm 118 for a, a little bit. You can go back to page 5 in your bulletin, or you can turn to page 511 in a pew Bible. We've we got to think about what this psalm is doing. It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm that began as we heard the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. He quotes specifically Psalm 22, which is a, a significant warning and a judgment. But verses 17 and 18, it confesses that God is good. He's ordained all this happened. 19 and 20, it's about entering the, the gates of the temple. It's a, entering the, the place of praise and the love of the Lord. If we drop down to 23 and 24, the, the Lord has done it. This is the day of the Lord. We, we can think back how Jesus has said, if, Oh, Jerusalem, if you'd have known, you'd known this is the day of the Lord, or the day of the visitation. Here in the middle of that ceremony of love and praise to God, we get verse 22. What's quoted? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The, the stone is highlighted. Right? This is Hebrew parallelism. The, the second line is emphasizing something unique about what's important. And so the stone that the builders rejected, well, well, what stone? What's so significant about the stone? It's the cornerstone. The cornerstone in a building is typically the most important. It's, it's, it's the first stone you put down. It's the foundational piece that will make sure everything else is level. I learned this the hard way as I learned most things, trial and error. I was building a wall, and so I put a stone in, and about eight you know, blocks later, it's all whoppy-jawed. That's a theological term that means backwards or crooked. Okay? <laughs> when, when the cornerstone is off, the whole building will be off. But the cornerstone, if solid, foundational, right, the building's sturdy. We're in the temple. The temple, Jesus already told them, is going to be destroyed. We're in the temple. The, 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 the idea of the cornerstone being the most important, significant piece of the, the building, that, and this is the most important building. Jesus is simply saying, the builders, those who were leading, working, keeping, chief priest, they've rejected the stone, the cornerstone. The, the cornerstone is the beloved son that was killed. The, the builders are the tenants, the chief priests. What you see here is Jesus making clear that this, this has all been ordained. This is not like the owner of the vineyard who did not know how his son would be treated. No, this, this has been ordained. This has been promised. This has been prophesied. Jesus has come to be the cornerstone to bring about God's salvation, finally. To, to, to build up a people who will be worshipers, finally. To, to know how to enter into the gates of his praise, finally. And those who are supposed to be the, 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 the religious authorities... The students of God's word, they should be able to recognize this is the one we've all been waiting on, but instead they're trying to destroy him. So he's giving them a warning. You're rejecting the promise of God. You're, you're rejecting all of what the Old Testament was pointing to. 
And then Jesus, verse 18, to make it very clear, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Well, why does he use those two different pictures? I believe it's to make clear how absolutely definitive and clear the destruction is for anyone who denies him. The, 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 the picture there, rejecting him, will end with absolute destruction. You can receive him, believe and be saved. You can reject him, remain in sin and be crushed. There is no third way. The question we have to ask this morning, are we walking, receiving Christ, with the respect that his authority deserves so that we would worship. Let me back out of this text and think about it. Jesus teaching with all authority as the son of God, he is the cornerstone. He's just cleansed the temple, the the most holy place. He's, He's out teaching the temple for God's people. He is being rejected in his holy place by his people's leaders. The warning is, do not reject him. The invitation is to believe in him. Believe in him who is the cornerstone. We need to be very careful here. We reject him individually and we will be held responsible individually. But when we receive him, he is the cornerstone that then builds up a new kind of temple where we are the stones all united and connected together in him. He is the great high priest, the one who leads us into true worship, building up a new kind of worship among a new kind of people. We see this in Ephesians 2. Paul declares Christ is the cornerstone of the new temple. The stones being used, well, that's the members of the church being built up together. The purpose of being built up together is that we might grow in holiness together. Having access to the Father by the Spirit through the Son in prayer. Remember, the temple is supposed to be a place of prayer. The invitation, come to Christ, to be united together, to grow up into holiness. This is where I have to feel the challenge today. Are we growing up into God's holiness in reverence and respect? The question is to leave. Are we respecting God? and his right to reign? Are we respecting God knowing he is and has all good authority? Are we respecting God and his prophets? Are we respecting God and embracing the love of his son? Are we respecting God and his call to be his holy people? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are good, that you have shown yourself faithful to a people who have regularly been unfaithful. We thank you for the way you have made it so clear you were steadfast in your love and in your promise making and keeping. Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we've doubted you as having right authority or being good. We pray now that we would be, we would desire to ask, how is it, how are the, reveal the ways in which 
we have not respected you. We have not sought repentance. We've come too comfortable with disobedience. Lord, we thank you for your grace that helps us see sin. We thank you, Lord, for the grace that heals us of that sin. We thank you for the grace that allows us to be a holy people. Help us to know how to receive Christ, your Son, the cornerstone. And help us, Lord, to know how to be built up as your holy temple. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing our song of response all to us. Thank you.